to Research Radio, Episode 4. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Dr. Ramona Alagia from the Factor Inwintosh Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto about her research related to differential response in child welfare practice. I'm your host, Matthew Hollingshead. Okay, so uh, my name is uh, Ramona Alagia, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto in the Factor in Wintage Faculty of Social Work, where I do um, research and I teach, and I'm also the Factor in Wintage Chair in Children's Mental Health. Today I'm going to be talking about a three-year study that was just uh, completed that involved examining a new child welfare model, a new child welfare practice in Ontario called differential response. And our research team really wanted to look at very specifically the impact of differential response on cases of domestic violence, those families who are um, affected by domestic violence Mm -hmm. in the child welfare system. So the research really focused on looking at what impact this model had, uh, hopefully a positive impact. That's why it was implemented for all forms of child maltreatment. But in particular, we were interested in looking at those families that were affected by domestic violence and referred specifically for their children being exposed to domestic violence. And before we get into the differential response research you've been doing, can you tell us a bit, give us a bit of background about Um, domestic violence in families that are involved in child welfare organizations? Okay. The background to this is that uh, in the past 10 years, 8 to 10 years, there has been a a very alarming increase in referrals to the child welfare system of families who are experiencing domestic violence and their children who are witnessing that or exposed to it. We like to use the term exposed. Uh, because there are many ways to for children to become aware and affected by domestic violence other than just direct eyewitnessing. Mm-hmm. And it was because of this increase, and so for example, I believe in uh, 2002, 2003, the Children's Aid Society of Toronto experienced a 500% increase wow. in referrals of children uh, exposed. And so uh, obviously this became um, a great concern Part of it was a legislative change that brought the, um, uh, this attention to uh, not only child welfare practitioners but other allied professionals uh, who started identifying more often, more clearly, when issues of domestic violence were affecting a family and the children, then uh, making referrals to the their local children's aid. So, for example, once the police law enforcement officers were made aware of this, of course, they're the first responders, often in a domestic violence incident. Uh, if they were aware of children in the home, they uh, started making um, referrals to uh, the children's aid. They're very thorough, <laughs> very detailed. One of the things we already found from the study was that the sort of primary referral source for this uh, type of issue in a family is from uh, police officers. 
we needed to understand how to better respond because at first there was sort of a gener- generic response so that all these families and all these children were then um, put through a formal traditional child welfare investigation, uh, often uh, maybe being transferred to ongoing services, when in fact they, people started thinking, hmm, maybe not all these families belong in intensive and sometimes intrusive child welfare intervention, but instead would benefit better by a community agency response. And so that's where differential response comes from, a better assessment at the beginning and to determine which families need to um, have ongoing services from child welfare and then which families could benefit by uh, community-based interventions. You know, a, a big part of my interest in doing research in this area is from a children's mental health perspective uh, because there's a whole body of research literature that indicates there are a significant number of children who, uh, when exposed to domestic violence, are uh, at risk for future uh, mental health issues, both in the areas of internalizing symptoms so that we've seen research that shows some children respond to being exposed to this type of parental violence Um, as experiencing higher rates of depression and anxiety. And other kids uh, have responded or been affected uh, by developing what we call externalizing behaviors, those kind of acting out aggressive, problematic behaviors uh, around uh, interpersonal relations uh, where bullying may become an issue or inappropriate uh, expression of uh, anger. So, and again, this research is still developing, but those are serious mental health issues that can develop from exposure. What we don't know is those kids that do well and have resilience, and we're not sure of why some kids come out of this type of um, experience without mental health issues. And so, you know, one of the areas that we want to look at more closely, too, is, you know, what helps kids in these situations to come out with um, without negative effects. So it was with this in mind that I wanted to start, first of all, with looking at the, the child welfare responses to these uh, children. How long does it take um, for mental health issues in kids who have been exposed to domestic violence to manifest themselves or make themselves known? Well, that's a good question. We're not always sure about that. For some kids, depending on other factors in their life, the effects could be immediate. For example, um, school personnel might see change right away uh, in terms of withdrawing, uh, having social anxieties, fearfulness, or the opposite kind of behaviors and suddenly having uh, aggressive um, sort of angry outbursts, temper tantrums, and they can start very young. We don't know what the developmental impact is yet, especially uh, with much younger children mm-hmm. who do not have the cognitive development or the brain maturity to be able to um, express or, or articulate their emotions or what's happening. They may have more of the physical type of symptoms, such as disruptions in sleep, night terrors, nightmares, eating problems, 
um, bedwetting, those kinds of things. So we don't even really know how to identify some of these symptoms as they arise. For other kids, it might be a more longer-term effect that settles in. All of this depends on how long they were exposed to the duration, the time they were exposed to um, uh, adult conflict, uh, domestic violence, and the intensity, what type they were exposed to, uh, because we know that violence and abuse comes in many forms, Mm -hmm. that it's not just physical, but it's also psychological, emotional, coercive control. So it depends on the type that the child has been exposed to, their age at the time of exposure, and how long they were exposed for, but also what kind of um, perhaps removing uh, or, or moderating effects are, are, are in, in that child's environment that might offset the negative effects of exposure, or what might they be lacking in their environment, such as supports to uh, to help them understand what's happening or work through it, and those kids might not do as well. So there's so many, I guess what I'm saying is very variable what happens, uh, which kids show uh, symptoms right away and which kids uh, delay and show them later on, perhaps in adolescence, and why some kids uh, come through it fairly unscathed. And it sounds like a really young um, and I'm sure exciting area to be doing research in. Yes, yes, and that's a part of my excitement about doing it is that it really is in its infancy. As I said, the legislation only changed about 10 years ago in Ontario to start recognizing this as an issue, and it was based on an emerging literature that um, there may be harmful effects to some kids uh, who are exposed to domestic violence. And that, actually, I want to clear up the definition of that. That is usually, in the majority of cases, where their mother is being abused okay. by a partner, uh, usually a, a male perpetrator. Mm-hmm. We found in our study that uh, 87% of the adult victims in the domestic violence um, allegations uh, were the mothers. And that holds very true to many other studies that have been done across North America that um, those numbers are, are very stable. All right. Um, so t- did you want to tell us a bit, a bit about the key findings from the from the research project then? Just before I talk about the key findings, uh, one of the things I did want to mention was that, uh, and it's very important to acknowledge this because we uh, I headed up the university team on this research project, but we had five key community partners, all children's aid service branches that participated in this study, mm-hmm. which is uh, really important in terms of talking about the, the findings because, first of all, without the uh, five uh, branches that we worked with, uh, we wouldn't have been able to uh, do the study that we did. Mm-hmm. But also, during the process of this three-year project, they acted as consultants. Uh, they helped with uh, recruitment uh, of, of uh, or data collection, um, and we were also checking in with them around our preliminary findings as we went along to make sure that you know there was some authenticity and uh, some sort of you know feedback loop to what we were finding and um, uh, how they could use that 
in their agencies to help in their practice. So I would say that the key findings were, first of all, that out of all the case files that we, we looked at, and we had a sample of almost a 1,000 case files that we looked at across these five agencies, about a quarter of the uh, cases uh, did involve domestic violence as an initial primary referring problem. Sometimes we found domestic violence being identified after a family was referred for another form of child maltreatment, but we were looking specifically at those that were referred as uh, having that as a primary issue. Uh, so that's important to uh, to distinguish. And so then we bore down more closely uh, examining those um, cases to look at what they're uh, what they're being referred for, what the problems were, some of the, the all of the characteristics of the families. Could we determine some trends, some patterns? And we also want to look at what the case outcomes were to see if that differential response is actually working in the way that it uh, that it that it should. Uh, by dual tracking the lower risk families into community-based services and the higher risk families into traditional child welfare ongoing services. What we found was that the families who were identified with having domestic violence as an issue tended to be um, younger parents with younger children. So that has implications for practice that I'll talk about in a moment. We found that um, there were far less children than we expected to be assessed with having experienced emotional harm, which is usually what the effects are. Very few children are actually physically harmed in domestic violence. They're sometimes caught in the crossfire of a domestic violence incident, but it's very rare. It's more that their kind of effect is going to be um, an emotional one. So we were surprised that only about a third of the children who were investigated for being exposed to domestic violence were deemed to be have been emotionally harmed. Mm-hmm. We expected that number to be much higher given the research literature. And so we want to understand that further, and that's when we involved our agency partners in the research and said, you know, what do you make of this finding? What do you think this says about your, your practice? Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, we were seeing that two-thirds of the domestic violence-involved cases were being referred to ongoing child welfare intervention. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make sense. If only one-third of the kids are being seen to be emotionally harmed, why are two-thirds of those cases actually being serviced in child welfare and not in the community? Mm-hmm. There's some well, sense among practitioners that the child welfare services might be seen as a protective factor in these cases? Well, that's, that was one hypothesis. Another one was that we didn't have the community capacity. Mm. So that workers were holding on to these families until they were sure they could make a referral out into the community right. that was appropriate and that uh, was available. So... You know, unfortunately, we we tend to change legislation and policies <laughs> before we evaluate the environment. Yeah. And, you know, that was part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation was that um, that these moms were, uh, workers were not convinced 
that they would be able to leave and stay away from the perpetrator because that would be one point of intervention to protect the child is to remove the source of the violence. And in this particular sample, uh, about a little over a third of the uh, perpetrators were actually charged and removed from the home because that's what happens, right? So that meant that probably in a third of those cases that the charges were laid and the perpetrator was removed, there was clear physical evidence that there had been a physical assault. So then it becomes less clear about, you know, the perpetrator doesn't necessarily have to leave the home. The mother may not have the resources to leave. She may need to go to a shelter with the children. There may be a wait list for the shelter. She may, for cultural reasons, feel that she can't go to a shelter. Maybe she doesn't want to remove her children from a community where um, the school is good and maybe her children need special services, which she's worked hard to get within the school, and if they move schools, they're going to lose that. There are a whole host of reasons why women can't just up and leave. And so if they're still living with the perpetrator and the children are still in the home, that would uh, indicate a higher risk level Mm -hmm. and a clearer mandate for child welfare to remain involved. But what we found was, because we also looked at what kind of referrals were being made for the family outside of child welfare to help the family, the most frequent uh, referral option that was made uh, or recommendation that was made to families were mostly for the mother to get adult services, usually victim services. And so that's an irony in itself when you think that child welfare services, their mandate is to service children. Now we're looking at (laughs) uh, an intervention around, you know, adults. makes sense. They're the parents. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, so this was another key finding. We found that most of the investigative efforts and referral recommendations were made for the mother, maybe to get parenting help, maybe to get family counseling, maybe to get Victim services, those are sort of the three top referral recommendations. Often, the perpetrator was missing in the investigation, so we found that to be a major, major key finding, and very few services were recommended for the perpetrating parent, usually the father or a male partner, um, to uh, receive help for their perpetrating behavior. So we took this back to each of the agencies we worked with on the research project. And they said, you know, that's the reality of our situation. We're not really trained to deal with perpetrators. They're hard to locate. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be located. And especially if charges have been laid, they have a lawyer that's usually counseling them not to talk to anybody, Uh, not to say anything that might implicate or damage their case. So they acknowledged that they need to have a clearer mandate and more tools to uh, investigate the perpetrating partner and to have some, uh, you know, real authority to be able to uh, recommend treatment for them. So that was acknowledged across all five agencies that we worked with. And so we had a, a, a large conference at the end of the study with all our partners and whoever else they wanted to bring to, to brainstorm, you know, how they want to work within these findings. So the one was far less children 
were deemed to be emotionally harmed than they thought. So with that key finding, they said, look, we don't really have the tools. There aren't really any assessment tools to determine or assess emotional harm. And that's true. You know, there, there are some generic tools, but not specific to domestic violence. Okay. And most people in the field, practitioners know this. So they don't have the tools, and they don't have the training, and they don't have the time because they're not mandated to do this. Yet they were acknowledging that they were probably missing key elements of what children were going through that might indicate that they've been emotionally harmed because they just didn't have the tools or the time to do it. So some of the agencies that were part of the research project actually then started up partnerships with Children's Mental Health Services in their communities to say, you know, we can't do these assessments, but do you think we could do a direct referral to your service so some of your clinicians can take a look at this child and see how they're doing and help us determine what we should be recommending? Did any of the... Um, agencies that were involved in your study have integrated children's mental health and child protection services? Yes, two of them did, so that they could make a direct referral. So Mm -hmm. these are culturally based, culturally um, developed uh, responses to their particular populations. And so they are very small agencies. They're serving uh, smaller cultural groups in the community and so they could do sort of a one-stop shopping kind of model within their agency and refer directly under the same umbrella into a service that could provide a mental health assessment for the children and ongoing services. So those agencies, those two agencies, were in a different kind of category, but that's not the reality of the larger agencies um, who then had to uh, develop and forge partnerships within their jurisdictions with local children's mental health services to get sort of a direct line, direct route to um, have a, a, a mental health assessment done on the children. So that was, you know, one great practice change that, that has happened. I know some of those projects are occurring today because so I, I you know, speak with the various players, practitioners involved. And that seems to be going quite well, including referring perpetrating fathers into services within children's mental health where they're offering parenting groups for those fathers who are engaging in abusive behaviors. And they may still have some child welfare involvement to monitor and supervise, but those dads are getting um, treatment to help them uh, understand what the impact is of abusing their, their mothers, their, their wives, their, their partners, with, with children involved, to understand that impact on their children and to change their parenting practices so that that's not occurring anymore. So we've seen a, a change there. The other thing I want to mention is that if you um, remember, I said that uh, one of the characteristics of the families was that they were younger parents with younger children. Mm-hmm. Trying to assess a child under the age of four for emotional harm is a difficult enterprise. Mm-hmm. Child welfare practitioners also have to rely on other professionals' reports to make their assessments and judgments and referral recommendations. But if a child under four uh, is not at school, 
the family's isolated, poverty's an issue, uh, may, they may not be seeing a doctor regularly, there really isn't that much input from other allied professionals than about how that child is doing. When I say, you know, we had a, a preponderance of um, younger children in the sample, we know we're missing them just purely because of their inability to be involved in an assessment because you'd have to do a lot of observation and there would be a lack of contact with other professionals or the school system before the age of four where others could weigh in on how that child is doing. So that's an issue that, you know, we have to continuously look at. And those kids may be asymptomatic or appear to be asymptomatic until a later age. Um, I'm curious to know more about the focus on mothers in the investigations. You spoke about some of the barriers and challenges that, that mothers have when they're leaving or women have in general when they're leaving um, abusive relationships. And can you talk a little bit about some of the practice implications of encouraging the victims of domestic violence to be leaving an abusive relationship when, when they're involved in, in child welfare services? Right, right. Well, you know, one of the major issues is the lack of funding. What uh, is really clearly needed that was uh, unfortunately cut back in the 90s is uh, funding for housing. Mm -hmm. So that affordable housing, social housing, subsidized housing for mothers so they can start a life as a single parent on their own in an affordable way in a safe community. And we used to call this second stage housing where uh, moms would go into, first of all, uh, a shelter with their children, get shored up, uh, get counseling, and then move out of the shelter into what we call second stage housing, which would be subsidized housing until perhaps they were gainfully employed, trained, whatever was needed uh, to get them back up on their feet independently. And that was cut back, and we never regained that funding. So we now, unfortunately, see a situation where uh, moms may go into shelters uh, for an emergency, crisis response kind of move, and once they see that there aren't very many options for them outside of that, they sometimes logically decide to, to, to move back in uh, with uh, into the family home and, and with the perpetrator. Um, the other major issue is affordable, high-quality childcare, because if moms are going to be able to get up on their feet independently, be gainfully employed, they need to be assured that their children are being provided daycare uh, outside of school hours or for younger children during the day. And, of course, we've seen an erosion of um, funding and subsidies for uh, daycare in the last 15 mm-hmm. years you know, very clear structural barriers that a clinician or a child welfare practitioner cannot take on mm-hmm. their own. We have to be very careful not to, uh, you know, you know, we start by blaming the mother, and then when we say, you know, that, that doesn't seem fair, like she's trying to get up on her feet mm-hmm. and everything, to then start blaming workers for not providing the right support or the right kind of intervention, when really these are huge structural issues yeah. that, um, you know, both the, the parent and the worker are facing together. It's daunting. And so, um, you know, it's really not a practice issue. It's a funding issue then. It really draws a lot of connections between the ways different service systems are working or not working together effectively to provide the kind of supports that people need. Mm-hmm. Well, 
You've already given a couple of examples about ways that this research project has impacted practice very tangibly with the agencies that you um, that you worked with while you were conducting it. And uh, and obviously there's a lot of opportunities for very creative work to be done by individual practitioners and workers as they're as they're working along with um, with mothers specifically. Do you have any other um, ideas about how practitioners can benefit from understanding um, of of the ways that differential response can be used in relation to domestic violence? Uh, I think that child welfare practitioners really do understand the theoretical premises of differential response as a, a model to more appropriately assess and provide services for for families where domestic violence is an unfortunate reality. I, I think they're dealing, though, with structural issues so that, you know, it's really hard to, to, to close a case with a family where you don't think the child welfare intervention is, is appropriate, but there's nothing else available at that moment in time. So they're doing the best they can under the lack of appropriate resources out there. I think when we talked to workers, when we saw their case notes and the narratives, you could see that there was really a struggle to try to service the family for as long as possible in the best way possible, knowing that maybe they weren't the most appropriate service. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the community capacity really needs to build so that they can finish with these families appropriately and know that they're referred on safely to uh, the proper proper setting. Um, I think as a field, we probably need to know more about what I call intergenerational transmission of violence. It's a, a theory, and a lot of this theory underpins our policies and our practice. Sometimes we know it as a cycle of abuse, breaking the cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. And it is built on the premise that children exposed to domestic violence are vulnerable to uh, growing up into adults who become future victims and future perpetrators. That's why this legislation was introduced and and people started intervening more uh, aggressively in these cases to try to break this cycle. That's what is behind this, you know, intervention. Like, can we help these kids be less exposed so they have less of a chance to grow up and repeat the cycle? But we've really, this theory hasn't really been tested out, but we're basing a lot of policy and practice on it. And we don't know, probably the best guess is that about a third of these kids grow on to repeat the cycle of abuse. But what do we know about those kids who are resilient and grow up and don't repeat the cycle. And what can we do to identify those factors and build those into our practices and interventions once we do identify that domestic violence is uh, is happening in a family? So we we you know I'd, I'd like to see the field move more into the area of let's understand what what you know what factors are involved in when the cycle of abuse gets repeated and what factors are involved when it's 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 not repeated and it's broken and people uh grow up to to have you know healthy relationships and and not to go on and you probably all you know you can think of examples with your friends and family or whoever you know 
maybe have had adversity in their life, but they go on to do something different, the opposite. They don't want to be like that. They don't want to. You know, we often have folks that tell us, you know, I didn't want to get into an abusive relationship. I didn't want to repeat the pattern of my, my father or my mother. And, and they do that. So um, we need to know more about that and how to develop programs that promote resilience and, and, and strength. Early intervention, of course, is early identification intervention. The, the sooner we intervene, the earlier uh, we can identify and provide uh, these kids a different environment, a chance and an opportunity that's also something. So we, we, we need to do more prevention and early intervention. You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 4, a conversation with Dr. Ramona Alasia. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PartEIP. That's P-A-R-T-E-I-P. Thanks for listening.